Hey guys, before we get into this episode, I want to give you some information. First, no opinions or views expressed in this episode are necessarily those of the Department of Defense or the Department of the Air Force, but are strictly those of my guest and me. The lawyers make us say that, and we're very thankful for their guidance. They keep us out of trouble. I also want to say a lot of investigators, agencies, and awesome citizen detectives worked on the Golden State Killer case. There were a lot of theories, and though a lot of those theories were just that, they still needed to be investigated. Cold cases are tricky. All avenues need to be explored and all suspects need to be investigated. Even though most of them turn out to be dead ends, the possibilities need to be eliminated and lots of time and work are spent on them. Finally, my time with Tom was unscripted. We talk a bit about our different duties as military historians, the Golden State Killer case, and other cases that caught our interest throughout our lives. This episode also occurs mostly through Zoom, so if the sound is funnier than normal, you know why. So without further ado, here's episode 15, Crime Fighting Historian. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the History Behind the Crime, a very special unscripted uh, episode with a very special guest today, uh, my first guest, uh, Mr. Tom Loria, who is a fellow historian and colleague. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Erin. So it's nice that you're here today. So as I said, completely unscripted, Tom and I are just going to talk because he's got some great stories. But Tom, what kind of, I, I get this a lot in emails, but what kind of historian are you? I'm a, I'm a, Air Force historian, work for the Air Force. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever talked to your listeners about what we do, but um, basically each base has a historian assigned. And our job is to write a big annual report on what the unit does each year. And that involves meeting lots of people and doing interviews and um, and kind of getting nosy, getting to know what everybody does on the base, which is <laughs> It's fun, though. You get to meet a lot of neat people and, and, and learn a lot of interesting things. The other side of the job is uh, historical research, as you know, and we get lots of questions. Some of them almost seem like bar bets sometimes. Uh, yeah, I, I think one of my my favorite ones from the past year, I got a I, I won't I won't name the the organization, but it was a UFO organization. And they they wanted to know about a historic UFO battle back in the 1970s in Washington. Wow. Yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, I kind of know for, for a fact that's not in the archives, but how do you how do you answer a request like this? So it's, it's tough because a lot of those folks. If you say it didn't happen, then they think you're covering something up. But, but though you've done due diligence and um, you weren't able to find it with what you had access to, it doesn't mean you didn't look or you're denying. But uh, it's very tough to appease uh, some of the folks. I had a strange one way back in the day that they thought that, um, that basically the government 
hid John F. Kennedy's coffin. <laughs> and it was a very strange misconception of facts. And basically what had happened when, when, when President Kennedy was assassinated and they were bringing his coffin on Air Force One, they couldn't get it around the seats. Yeah. And the coffin got damaged. So when they when they landed and they went to, to bury him, they didn't want to bury the president of the United States in a broken coffin. So they got him a new one. Well, now they're like, what do we do with the old one? They were afraid that scavengers or some strange people would want to chop it up or auction it off or something. And they would. And they would. So the government um, basically took it in an aircraft, uh, drilled holes in it, filled it with concrete and dumped it in the deepest part of the ocean. So nobody would take the coffin and desecrate it. But the conspiracy uh -uh. theory was that his real body was inside and it was not. <laughs> so wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think the strange part is wait, they actually did sink it to the bottom of the ocean. Yes. How have I never heard of this? I just happened to be the units and things I was involved in. I was, again, privy to that information. Not every history office is privy to all the information. Again, we're talking, this was back in the 90s, so we didn't, you know, the internet and all that was in its infancy, so we couldn't trade knowledge as good. But I can guarantee you, he is buried in Arlington Cemetery, and the one they got rid of is... It at the bottom of the ocean filled with concrete. <laughs> oh my gosh, that that is an excellent tidbit of historical information. I like that one. <laughs> so yeah, it just proves that I mean some of the requests that come in to to our offices, they're sometimes they're just they're they're a little bit out there. Yeah, I had a, another strange one where they um somebody thought that in World War II we had enlisted uh Troves of little people to go fight. Oh, and well, <laughs> this was a story that grew legs. It is true that during World War II, when we were, you know, the U.S. was ramping up its production, we did hire little people, but they were to work on parts of the aircraft that were inaccessible to us big people. Okay. So, and it's true. You can see pictures. You can see pictures and historic photographs, and. It, their, their contributions are extremely helpful in that range. But oh, absolutely. See how over the years, the story grew legs that now we have like a, uh, a, a division of little people in uniforms going to fight. And that did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no. That they were just helping in the factories. It's just, again, these things grow legs and people, people run away with it. People, so it's funny. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I don't know what I would do if I had... If I had a request like that, that would be mm. so. But that's, that's the fun part of our job is, you know, we, we do help to prove what's first, what's right. Uh, oh, yeah. Give credit where credit is due. And the problem with that, <clears throat> excuse me, like we mentioned in the beginning is we do our due diligence, but people still elect not to believe that we did it. And that, that gets frustrating. It does. But, you know, they're. Uh, especially this past week, I, I've gotten, I, I think, more thank you emails than, than not. And one of them even going as far as to say, you know, Aaron, you're my hero for finding this for me. And 
I'm sure you've experienced it. It just, it makes your day. Mm -hmm. Oh, it, it sure does. It sure does. Um, and I know we'll be getting to this later when I used to work in the archives. It would, that's all I did all day long was answer historical inquiries. And it was very nice. Every once in a while, a t-shirt would show up in the mail oh. or a box of candy or a, or an acknowledgement in a, in a book that the author wrote and used our info. And he says, I want to thank Tom Laurie at the archives for helping with this info. And here's a free copy of the book. I mean, it just really made your day that you could help people with that. Oh, I've, I've never had a, um, a book dedication to me, but I would, I would love a box of chocolates every now and again. Um, <laughs> what happens at least for me is that when I tell people I'm a historian, they kind of look at me funny because they have that, that preconceived stereotypical image in their head about the, the tweed wearing professor. Yes. And they're staring at a, um, a young woman, or at least I think I'm a young woman, you know, with, all tatted up. Uh, but they also think that we're just necessarily involved with what I call old history. Correct. Or they think we're the experts and know every single tidbit about whatever, you know, Air Force or or Army, wherever we're working. And they have to realize that we have to learn too. And my joke is like, we have where I work, we have a uh, library and a librarian. And, the, you know, the joke with her is, Oh, you've read every book in the library because you're the librarian. <laughs> uh, yeah. And say, oh, you must know everything about the Air Force. You're an Air Force historian. No, I don't. I'm learning every day. Yeah. And that's the joy of the job when you get asked something out of your box and you dig in and research. Not only did you help somebody, but you learned something new, too. Yeah. And I, I, I like that. I've been in my office for five years now, which you know, relatively, it's it's not that long of a, a time period, but I'm always discovering, you know, I'll be back in my archives and it's like, oh, never knew this one. I'm going to have to bring this up to, you know, the commander later on. But with that preconceived notion of like, we just dive into old history or we just answer requests, some of the more interesting things we get are, you know, what you brought up to me the other day when I first asked you if you wanted to come on the podcast and you're like, Oh yeah. Did I ever tell you about the time that this happened? And for me, it was like a whiskey tango foxtrot moment. And it was like, no, I want you to come on and talk about this. This is awesome. <laughs> so not only do we get requests from the public, but every now and again, law enforcement contacts us um, to help them with either a fresh case or a cold case. And in your, you know, your, your story, this was a, this was a very famous cold case. Yeah, it's correct. Um, yeah, this, this occurred when I, I was, um, I became a historian, uh, taught at the schoolhouse that trained historians. And then uh, when I retired from active duty, I, I took on a job at the archives, the air force archives. And, um, fascinating fascinating job and then that's like i mentioned before that's all i did all day was answer historical inquiries all the way from the white house congress department of defense to a school kid working on a project um yeah. my specialty was va uh, veterans affairs investigations so if a veteran had a um they were trying to get benefits 
uh, they would con the v the VA would contact us, and I would help the veteran. Let's say prove that they were at a spot. Mm -hmm. um, I was at this base overseas. We got we got bombed. I had PTSD. I was injured, and then I would help prove that the veteran was there to help them get their benefits. The other side of the coin is we had there unfortunately were some people that would lie to try to get benefits. So it was, uh, prevented a lot of fraud as well. Um, but the point I'm going with this is it was very specialized um, research and it kind of honed me up for a good, a good investigative mind. And that's when the day when um, around 2015, end of 2015, where the FBI contacted the archives and they were opening up cold cases. Now it's funny. They didn't, they didn't tell us at all. They didn't give us any details. They just said, we're working on a case, a high profile case of a bunch of uh, murders and rapes that happened in California in the late seventies. And we're like, okay, well, what do you need from us? Well, we think the suspect is military and we would like to see if you can pull all the personnel rosters from all of the base histories in the area. Oh my gosh. That's a tall order. <clears throat> Huge order. In fact, I had another uh, one of my colleagues had to help me with this. And she and I, it was cartloads of, of history reports because there's not just one base in California. There's a there's a slew. Right. I was looking at it today in preparation of this case. And I mean, we know we're very familiar with um, a lot of the Air Force bases. Uh, and in the 70s, you not only had a lot of the bases that are around today, but there were several that have since been, then been closed, like McClellan, because you're talking about Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, even the Coast Guards out there. Well, from what I gathered, they they had contacted the other um, uh, services. So my friend and I, we were handling the Air Force end, and so, oh, some history reports don't even include personnel rosters. So some no. were just complete dead ends and we couldn't help them at all. Others did include the information and we were able to um, scan them the disc and send them out. But of course I, I was trying to figure out what case we were working on. So I started doing some digging and, and you know, you know, doing my, my Google foo. Yep. And, Curiosity um, got the best of you. <clears throat> and I, I narrowed it down that I, I, I thought that we were working on the golden state killer case. And when the when the FBI contact talked to me, I, I asked her and she said, yes, she said, but, you know, don't talk about it. And all right, I won't. So now now I started looking into who the Golden State Killer was. And mm -hmm. that was a door I wish I hadn't opened. Yeah, that's um, I've gotten into looking into that case recently and we're talking about joseph d'angelo who was he has committed at least uh 13 murders 51 rapes and 120 burglaries all in the sacramento area santa barbara ventura orange county and yeah that you're right that's just that's just something that you wish that you just never heard of yeah it was um I started reading the, the details of, of how how he committed the crimes and um, incredibly disturbing. Uh, the, the one where he would enter the houses and, you know, 
where there would be a, a couple home and then he would um he would get them you'll have a gun and then have them uh restrained and he put the man on the floor and stacked the dishware on the man so that if he moved he would hear the dish break and then he would kill them and then he would rape the woman within earshot or sometimes visual of the man having to watch this and it was just heinous and scary and uh I even started having some dreams about it. I was like, oh my gosh. And I'm and now I'm thinking, Tom, all you're doing is, you know, sending f- paper files to the FBI. You're not even you're not even a hundred miles close to this. But it still bothered me and it made me think about what the investigators must go through who are or, you know, danger close to these cases and the things they see and how they go to bed at night. If it affected me that, that way and I was again very far removed from it. Yeah, well, it's a you never expect. I mean, especially in our job, I mean, you never expect something like this to touch you personally, and it did. Um, yeah, it's very, very, very disturbing. And but it was a Herculean effort, and so you know, we're compiling all this data. And, and my friend and I were trying to think, you know, like how are they going to do it? You know, they must have a name, or they might have a few names, and they're going to try to go through and cross reference. Um, so we were continuing to um, provide it. And then they called us with another request. And this this one was interesting. This one got us really excited to the point of where we thought, jokingly, well, it's funny now, but it wasn't at the time. We thought we might have cracked the case. Ooh. Um, <clears throat> there was um, one of the murders um, near uh, Mather Air Force Base. It was the Br- Brian and Katie Magalore. Yes. I don't know if I'm saying that right. He was an Air Force security policeman. They were out walking their dog. They saw the um, perpetrator up to something. And when they approached him, he pulled a gun. They tried to run away and he shot them dead in the street. Well, at that crime scene, there was a car. I think it was a Mustang. And the Mustang had a decal in the window of it looked like an aircraft. And so the FBI was like, if you can identify this decal and we can identify with the car, we can maybe find the unit this person was assigned to. And maybe this is our guy. Because, again, at the time, they were thinking he was military. With that one, it's a few investigators and even some of the victims thought not only did they think that he was military, but they thought he was Air Force as well. One of his early victims that he attacked, uh, her husband was uh, stationed, I believe, at McClellan. And she was also um, in the Air Force at the time. But as he was attacking her, he said that he had seen her at the O Club, uh, which for, for most people out there, they don't call it the O Club. They refer to it as the Officers Club. Not that we have officers or enlist, enlisted clubs anymore. But that was a working theory amongst investigators that he either worked at McClellan or Beale or Travis. Yes. And uh, uh, they were they were hoping that um, if we could identify the decal and the car, they might have the person. And then with the personnel records, you know, everything would hopefully fall into place. So they send us the image. (laughs) I've been in Air Force history since 1999. And I didn't know what this image of the aircraft was. I'd never seen it before. I'm like, 
what the heck is this? And I'm, I didn't even know where to look. And, and I don't think Google at the time, or maybe I didn't know how, had the image search that it does now. So I'm there and I'm sitting and then it, then it dawned on me, there was a colleague I worked with and his, his name was Archie. This guy was the preeminent aircraft historian. I, I would bet there's <laughs> hardly anybody on the face of the earth that is good as this guy. Older yep, gentleman. Yep, and, knew everything there was to know about aircrafts, including yep. wingspans. Oh, you could show him a bolt from an aircraft and he would tell you, oh, that's from a P-38, this model and this year. And <laughs> so <laughs> I went down the hall. I said, Archie, do you know what this is a picture of? I mean, he, he looked at it half a second. Oh, oh, that's a Ryan Firebee drone. I'm like, a what? Oh, my God. What? Yeah. So what are you talking about? It's a Firebee drone. I go, okay, what's a Firebee drone? And he said, you know, back in the late 60s and into the 70s, they would remote pilot these drones. I know it's actually very big. And they would use them for, for um, pilots to target practice on or, or to practice, you know, closing in on an enemy aircraft. And they would fly, yeah, they'd fly them over the Pacific Ocean. And um, when they'd either run out of fuel or if the pilot shot it down, then they would retrieve them, repair them and use them again. I was like, wow. So now the now the catch was, were they operating these out of any bases in California? So I you know, did my diligence, and yes, they did. The uh, Navy and the Marines are doing it. The Navy would control them, practice, shoot them down. The Marines would use their helicopters and go bring them back. So now we're like, is this guy, the, is the uh, – suspect a, a marine or navy person and was this his unit and did this little sticker to give him away so that was the next part of it and we're like oh my gosh maybe we cracked the case and we're all happy and <laughs> come to find out none of our information helped because when they caught him he was a prior police officer not a military person. <laughs> Actually, um, he joined the Navy in 1964. Ah, was not aware of that. Yeah, he was in the Navy, I think, for about 22 months. Um, he was on, oh, don't quote me on this. I think he was on a cruiser. And yeah, he served for the pretty much the two-year Vietnam enlistment and then he got out, and in 73, he joined the Exeter Police Department, um, scary enough, in the burglary unit. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, how creepy is that, that you have this guy, because around 73, he's the Vesalio ransacker. He's in the burglary unit, and he's breaking into people's houses at the same time. And knows more than likely the best person you know how to cover his tracks. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, I, I think that was the creepy thing about this. Like, it, you know, you, you said, you know, this kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies because, you know, you you technically you worked on the case and you started looking into it on your own. But I don't even know where I was going with this, but it was just the the creep factor of this case is just, it's off the scale. Well, the other thing is you're working on it and then you're also then your imagination sometimes runs away with you, especially at night. 
where, you know, is he going to find out I'm working on it? Because he didn't, he was unapprehended at the time. And so, you know, your mind runs wild. <clears throat> you're thinking about the cases. You're thinking about the horrible things you did to these people. And, and then you go to bed. But the next day you're going back to work. And what am I doing all day? Um, for eight hours a day, pulling documents and files related to the case. So your mind doesn't get a big break from it. Like I said earlier, again, I'm so far removed from what a real detective in, in these offices are having to deal with up close. And it still bothered me. So oh, well, like I guess you said, I'm glad I, mean, I didn't become a cop. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, I mean, you know, you were afraid of like he, he hadn't been caught, but uh, interesting that you said that I, I read Michelle McNamara's book, I'll be gone in the dark. And she was actively searching for him. I mean, she, she was a, she was a blogger and very good writer. And she was even saying in some of her interviews and on her own blog that sometimes she was afraid that he knew what she was doing. And one of the cold case investigators um, looking for D'Angelo Paul Holes, that was his thing because he had been on the news so much um, starting about 2015 when the FBI got involved um, talking about the Golden State Killer case. And he was afraid that one day somebody was just going to walk up and shoot him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, your fears were justified because they they found a lot of hinky stuff in D'Angelo's house uh, when they arrested him. You know, it's the other the other side of it was the, you know, the sheer disappointment of, of all the work that we put into it. A lot hours and hours of work and um, that it didn't help. And again, you, you start to think about the police officers, investigators that they have a set of leads in front of them. They follow them and. Too often, many are dead ends. It's a lot mm -hmm. of time and energy and emotion put into that, and nothing comes of it. And again, how frustrating that must be. And they, they see that on a daily basis. So I guess what I'm getting to is working on the case really gave me a, a higher appreciation for what our detectives and law enforcement do and what they're involved in. Um, yeah, God bless them all. I mean, that, that was yeah, very, very enlightening. Yeah, and I've, I've always said on this podcast that we need good investigators. And for this case, um, all the cold case investigators, they kept on pulling those strings. And even if they thought it didn't lead anywhere, they still had to pull on that string. And the military aspect, it was a working theory that a lot of not only the investigators, but also citizen detectives out there, that was what they were working with. A lot of them were convinced this guy was active duty military at the time of these attacks. And, you know, I am very glad that out of all the, all of our colleagues, out of all the historians that I know that you were able to work this case because I know that you are very diligent in, in what you do. No, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, like when you when you said, "Oh yeah, well, did did you did you ever hear about the time I worked on the Golden State Killer case?" It's like, "What?" <laughs> I'm sorry, say that again. I'm staring at my phone on the text message. I'm like, "That SOB, he never told me about this." Well, I guess because it really didn't again, it, there was no 
outcome of it. Um, but it was interesting. I, when I, I did some research, you know, before talking to you to get the, you know, dust the cobwebs off. Um, I know the FBI publicly announced they were reopening the case in 2016. And this was just before that. So they were already yep. starting to gather and do their homework. And which tells me they had other other avenues they were following as well. And just using all the resources that they had at their hand. Oh yeah. At this point in 2015, um, there was a lot of activity in the case because, you know, I, I talk about him quite often on this, this podcast. Um, Paul Holes, who was um, a cold case investigator of Contra Costa County, uh, California, where some of the rapes occurred he and one of the Orange County criminalists, uh, they managed to link the DNA in 2001 uh, between the East Area Rapist cases and uh, the murders down in uh, the Orange County area where he was known as the original Night Stalker. But in 2015, there was more press attention because of Michelle McNamara. And finally, the FBI jumped in and it became a multi-agency, multi-county investigation. And they were constantly running the DNA uh, through CODIS, but they also started to use more of the genealogy aspect to it. So yeah, they were pulling out leads and theories like crazy starting in 2015. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, you mentioned that in ancestral uh, DNA, how they caught him, which is really fascinating. And um, again, the, I think the first time that was put out in mainstream media yep. that, hey, here's another way we can use DNA. We'll find you through your relatives. Oh, like, yeah. As as a historian, I went I went nuts for that. Yeah, that's one of my part time hobbies is genealogy. And I never thought in a million years, I like, well, heck, they have a relative and they can they can deduce it down to, well, it's this guy, this guy, or this guy, and by age, and uh, this guy is the only one living in California, so I guess it's him. Yeah, I was, um, if you guys out there, um, Paul Hole's book, Unmasked, he goes through that journey, but I was really interested that it took them months to do all these family trees, and this is back in, they started this uh, 2018 2017, 2018, took them months and months and months. And today, you know, it's a few hours. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it blows my mind. It makes me think of um, that movie uh, that what Bruce Willis was in called Looper. In the future, technology, DNA, what has gone so far that you cannot get away with murder anymore. So they go back and pass the commit crimes. And it makes me wonder, are we going to get to that one day with <laughs> as we perfect this as we perfect the science and our techniques is will there be a point where you know what? You can't get away with murder anymore. You know that that's I mean that that's a hopefully yes. Um but everything else that's happening in that movie, it's like, oh hopefully no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I love the way genetic genealogy has taken off. Uh, and I know I've mentioned it on this podcast in May. I'm going on Crime Cruise and we'll have the opportunity to listen to CC Moore, who's a genetic genealogist. But <laughs> so I'm I'm really excited to hear 
both of them talk about the advances that gene um, genetic genealogy has, you know, has come out just in the last few months because on the Idaho university case, they use genetic genealogy. That's right. You're right. Yeah. And that was, that was a fresh case. Mm -hmm. Tom, I am, I am in awe. I never imagined in a million years that as a historian, we can also play these larger parts, um, especially in law enforcement. So like I said, when you mentioned that, you know, Yes, I mean it was a small part that you played, but it was still an oh my gosh moment. Yeah, in all my years, I, I think I worked in the archives, um, trying to do math in public here, uh, about eight years, and I can't even tell you the number of requests I did, and that was the first time. That was the very first time uh, to help with uh, with uh, anything in in the criminal. Um, with a criminal subject. And it was surprising. And again, it was very fun at first. And, you know, the whole point of, Oh, if what I do can help catch this terrible person, yeah. this is awesome. And then, um, and then, like I mentioned, it, it took a little bit of a spooky side. It's, I guess, I guess a good way to put it is I took a peek into the abyss and just kind of peeked and pulled back. And I'm glad that's all I got to do. And, um, but I'm glad that they caught them regardless that our, our efforts didn't help. But they said it was a working theory and they were very happy with what we provided them. Um, but well, your information was able to eliminate and that's just as, as important. True. Um, True. I thought it was interesting. Uh, D'Angelo was arrested in April 2018 and I was on temporary duty assignment to Travis Air Force Base at the time. And I was working there at the museum and it was all anybody was talking about. For those of you who don't know, um, at our at military museums, there's a lot of volunteers and a lot of them are are older. And so these guys were talking about it. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember this on the news. And this happened when I was 30 years old. I was an airman or um one of them was a Marine. He's like, yeah, you know, I told my wife, you better lock the doors when I'm not here. And that they could finally see a conclusion to that. Like they were, they were thrilled. No, it's, you, you bring up a memory for me where um, the only other time in my life really having a uh, scary brush of crime with that when I was a, when I was a kid in the seventies, I remember it was Mich New Jersey has a thing called Mischief Night. Not many people know what that is, but the night before Halloween, kids run around and, and vandalize and throw eggs and toilet tissue. And so my brother and I were outside guarding the house at the night. <laughs> we lived out in the sticks and uh, my mother comes flying into the driveway. And jumps out of the car screaming at us to run in the house and lock all the doors. And we're like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Right? We run in the house. We lock all the doors. And she's upset. And we're like, Mom, what's going on? And on her way home from work, there was a police barricade on the road stopping everybody and questioning them about a family in our town that was murdered. And... 
They oh were stopping God. everybody, asking for if they had seen anything on these particular nights and, um, and, and just trying to get leads. Well, it's a small community in New Jersey, and the whole town, like, locked up. Like, people were scared to death. People were afraid to leave their houses. Um, it, was, it was horrible. It was a, it was a, uh, a mother, a father, and their three-year-old son. Oh, no. And the, I guess, basically, and it's still a cold case. They haven't solved it, but the, the father opened the door, was shot in the foyer. Um, they went upstairs and shot the mother, cut her throat, and cut the baby's throat in the crib. Oh, my God. And this is the smallest little town in New Jersey, Folsom, New Jersey. And this happened in the 70s, right at Halloween. It was like out of a, out of a horror show. And um, our school bus had to go by that murder house every day. And the school oh. bus, you know, runs, yeah, talking, yelling. And as soon as the house would come up for the next three years, that bus would go completely silent as we passed by the house because everybody was so freaked out about it. The Deal family, D-E-A-L, the Deal family. Uh, the New Jersey State Police just recently reopened that cold case to try and get to the bottom of it. There's a lot of weird theories out there. and um, But again, that was... You never expect something in a small town mm -hmm. uh, to hit home like that. And it's such hor and a horrific thing. Yep. Um, then years and years and years go by. I'm in the Air Force, blah, blah, blah. And then next thing you know, I'm working on a serial killer case. It kind of brought some of that back, too. I was like, whoa, this is, this is creepy. But because they didn't solve that murder in my town, again, it put a lot of... Um, Put a lot of focus on helping the FBI with the Golden State Killer because, like, all right, we haven't found who killed the poor Deal family. We're going to find out who who this knucklehead is and get him. Yeah, what's what's even a little creepier with with the, the Deal family murder? Um, I was invited to a Halloween party. Um, oh, don't tell me it was at that house. No, no, it was across the street from the house. Oh, though. geez, and. As my mother was driving me over there um, and went, we had to make a left turn into my friend's driveway. A car came from that direction of where the murder happened and its lights were off and almost hit us and nope. flew down the road. Nope. And I remember we pulled in and my friend's mom was out on the steps and she saw it too. She's like, oh my gosh, I, th th those people almost hit you. They didn't have their lights on. And to this day, my mom is convinced that that might have been the perpetrators fleeing the crime scene. Oh um, my gosh. I have contacted some people that are close to the scene and family members. They didn't know that information, even though my mother relayed that to the police and they did say it does kind of fit the timeline of when they think they were killed. Oh which my God. Even scarier that uh, yeah <laughs> oh I'm, I'm getting the chills over here oh no nope 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 so again could it be a coincidence i don't know but to this day and even when the subject comes up with my brother and my mom we're all in the car we get we, we get the chills like could it have been the people um, yeah. because the family hadn't been heard from for about two days i think oh my gosh and so then the family went over there to check on the house and saw the the cars there and then they looked in the window and saw the husband dead 
and called the police. So they had been there for a few days. Yeah, so, you know, there are, from my research and from my short tenure in law enforcement, there are a few coincidences in law enforcement. So that's what, ooh, okay. Well, uh, well, here's the, what if they had hit us? And if it was them, what would have happened? You know, would they have tried to get rid of us as well? Right on the middle of a Maze Landing Road in Folsom? I hope not. Yeah, no, don't don't borrow trouble, my friend. Do not borrow trouble. Oh, what well, was creepy is after a few years, you know, driving by the the house, somebody bought it. Oh they yeah, it in an auction. And I'm like, how could you live in there? People buy murder houses all the time i mean look how, how many times the amityville house is sold uh, very true well said you know but yeah people buy murder houses all the time and it's just like well the, my only thought is how big of a deal are you getting on it mm. because you would have to pay me a lot of money to live in a house like that yeah i yeah it's you know it's funny even today i'm like because I, I i had the privilege of um being able to move a lot closer to home where I work. And um, what a whim. Decided to take my wife and kids to go see my, fam my my neighborhood I grew up in. And I had to drive by that house and it came up and there it is on the left. And I got real quiet and go, that's the house, guys. And, yeah. And it's like, ugh. and my my friends, I've, I've reconnected with many of my childhood friends and they all say the same thing when they go by. It, that's all they remember about that house. It's, that's the house. That's the house. And it's sad. Sad for the family. And of course, you know, sad that, that, that the, the energy and shade thrown at that place just, you know, anyway. But yeah, that was, that, that, you know, the two closest touches with, um, with this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I uh, would say those are some two very, you know, significant um, cases right there. Tom, I, I want to, I want to thank you for taking up some of your very valuable time. Um, our weekends are very important, especially during this time of the year when we're all working on our, our histories. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, it's my pleasure, Aaron. Um, you and I go way back. So, you know, all you got to do is ask. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I may, um, I, I may, um, ask you to come on again and we can talk about how awesome historians really are once once people get over our awkwardness yeah <laughs> what i'm hoping is maybe maybe you can do some sleuthing or find uh some with this deal murder that would be very interesting and i i i know a lot of other folks that would could come on and, and talk to that subject but pleasure to talk about this pleasure to talk about the uh the history career field and 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 again it, it it brings a positive spotlight to the archives are there we do our due diligence um mm -hmm. just because we say no doesn't mean we throw it to the side and didn't do it no we looked we look i mean even when it comes to ufos dang it i took out that history and i looked me too This week I want to talk about a missing person and cold case that some of you may be aware of. My sister-in-law reminded me of the case as she was once a roommate of Julie Murray, the sister of Maura Murray. On Monday, February 9th, 
2004 at approximately 7.30 p.m., a black-colored Saturn four-door sedan belonging to 21-year-old Mara Murray traveled off Route 112 in Haverville, New Hampshire, and became stuck. The roads in that area of northern New Hampshire were snow-covered at the time. Mora was not present at the crime scene when the police arrived and has not been seen nor heard from since. Mora was last seen on a surveillance footage earlier in the day at an ATM wearing a dark jacket and jeans. Prior to that, Mora had left the University of Massachusetts Amherst where she was studying nursing. Mora would not share with others her pending trip to New Hampshire, which was about a two and a half hour drive away. Moore received prior education at the United States Military Academy at West Point, was an avid runner, and enjoyed hiking in the White Mountains. At the time of her disappearance, Mora had light brown hair, blue-green eyes, 5 foot 7 and 120 pounds. She is female and white. Mora had dimples on both cheeks with a scar above. She also has fillings and crowns present. Mora's sister, Julie Murray, has kept Mora's case alive and has been featured in several true crime documentaries and podcasts. You can listen to Missing Mora Murray wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any information about Mora, you can contact the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-223-3860 or 1-800-NAB. D-O-P-E or email coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. You can also contact the FBI VICAP tip line at 703-632-4254 or 1-800-634-4097. If you feel uncomfortable going to the authorities, you can also reach out to me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com or on Instagram at thehistorybehindthecrime. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people in New Hampshire or Massachusetts who do. Share Mora's story with them. Also, this week a very dear friend of the podcast lost a young family member to suicide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people 15 to 24 years of age and devastates family and friends. Please talk to your teens. Do not be afraid to be direct with them. Ask them directly, are you thinking about killing yourself? Let them be open and honest with you without fear of judgment or reprisal. Get them the help they need. If you or anyone you know are thinking about suicide, please call 988 within the United States. You can also call 911 or emergency services. Help is out there and you are not alone. Thanks friends for tuning in to this episode and thank you Tom for being my very first guest. It's always a treat to talk with you. Once again, I want to hear from you all. I want to hear your stories and answer any questions you may have about the podcast or just questions in general. Email me or message me on Instagram. Until next time, dear listeners, do Maggie a favor.
Take care of yourselves. <laughs> and take care of each other. Later.